and the CBA is the host of this event. Um, I want to uh, thank you all for coming. Now, what type of event is this? I guess universities have always been places of learning where people come to learn new skills, new knowledge. And like most of you in the audience today, that means formalized study that leads to a degree in classrooms with exams and so on. And that's very important. But to me, universities are more than that. And throughout their, their histories, they have been forums for new ideas, new ways of thinking, ex exchange of thought. And a lot of times there have been public lectures starting back in London you know, several hundred years ago and extending to today. So I'm so pleased tonight in that we have this sort of open forum, a way for you to learn valuable information that maybe can stimulate your thinking, answer questions, or just uh, raise new ideas in your own mind. So stay tuned, it's gonna be a great evening. Uh, first of all, let me introduce a couple people. Uh, first of all, let me start with Kathleen Lacey. Just maybe stand up and say hi. <laughs> Dr. Lacey is the director of the Legal Studies and Business Program. And if we're if the CBA is a sponsor, then I guess Legal Studies has to be a co-sponsor because this is about intellectual property and, and some of the legal, legal angles of doing business. So thank you, Dr. Lacey. <laughs> and let's see, Allison Butler sitting right here in the front. And Allison is also in the Legal Studies of Business program. She's one of the lecturers in that program. And back in May, I believe, after the semester was over, she came to me with this idea about maybe having a legal information clinic. Uh, because even though in the classroom, a lot of principles, concepts about law are developed, students may come in with their own questions. And, you know, classroom, our instructors are very, um, very much prone to answering questions that students ask, but Allison had an idea of making it a little bit more formal and creating a clinic that would be open for students to come in uh, beyond the classroom. So amazingly, that idea that started in May got implemented in August when the semester began. So I want to thank Allison for providing the idea, the impetus, and the energy to get it off the ground. But now it is a very important part of the whole legal studies and business program. So, and Allison came to, uh, to me and, and Ryan McKinney with the idea for this intellectual property forum or workshop or radio show. So one thing led to another, here we are. So thank you everyone. Uh, let me just say thank you to Ryan McKinney in the back. Yeah, baby. Ryan's main role is in the Director of Development for the College of Business Administration, which means any donations you have, you give to him. But it's really about developing a community and letting everyone know about the great college that we have here. So Ryan, thank you for all that. Uh, so now let me introduce our host for tonight. You see the picture right there? I'm going to introduce the man behind the picture. You've all heard of Critical Mass Radio. You can get it anywhere, anytime. It's an internet-based radio. So I think that this event tonight will end up on Critical Mass Radio in the not-too-distant future. So that's sort of the, the framework with, within which we're operating tonight. 
So let me just introduce Rick and get off the stage, and then we can start with the actual, the actual panel. Uh, Rick Franzi works exclusively with CEOs and executive teams of middle market firms. His firm, Critical Mass for Business, is dedicated to making a lasting, positive impact on the lives of business leaders through the power of peer learning. Uh, he has appeared on CNBC, he's worked with Inc.com, American Express Open Forum, Orange County Register, and Orange County Business Council, or Orange County Business Journal. He's lead author of a book, Critical Mass, The Ten Explosive Powers of CEO Peer Groups, and I believe he has a new book coming out this summer. So he's never rests. He's always working on something. Uh, Rick received his MBA from Pepperdine University and previously worked at Delphi Corporation Systems for seven years as president and general manager, where he grew the top-line revenue 40% through product and market diversification. Prior to that experience, Rick spent 25 years as a sales and marketing executive for a variety of technology firms. Today, Rick has emerged as a respected thought leader and acclaimed expert on the power of peer learning for CEOs and business leaders, and is one of the most dynamic and influential peer group leaders in the nation. You will soon see how dynamic he is. Rick is a member of the National Center for Employee Ownership, the Society for Professional Journal Journalists, uh, the Los Angeles Press Club, the Orange County Press Club also. He has won numerous honors and awards. Please, help me welcome Rick Franzi as our moderator for this evening's event. I'm going to shut this off by handing it to you. There you go. Delegation of responsibilities. Good evening. It's great to be here. Can you hear me all right? Yes. I don't need to turn the microphone on for fear that you might get some feedback. So we're just going to go commando here relative to the microphone for a while, if that's all right with all of you. All right. I'm super excited to be here. Thank Dean Salt and the whole team for organizing this. Uh, I've been doing this for a couple years. This is probably the third year we've been doing these kind of events. I do these events throughout Southern California at other college campuses, and I'll just tell you a secret. This is my favorite place to do these panel discussions. Give yourself a round of applause for being my favorite place to do try hard, but they're just not up to your standards yet. So here's what I know. It's probably been a long day for some of you. Maybe it's still morning time for some of you relative to your college schedule. I don't know, but I do know you probably have something else you'd like to be doing later this evening, right? I know it's only Tuesday. Tuesday isn't a new Friday yet in college, is it? Okay. But we still have maybe a class or something else, homework? It's never, you're never done when you're an undergrad or a graduate student in college, right? There's always one more thing to get done. So my job as your moderator is to make this as enjoyable for you as possible by keeping this very intelligent and well-informed panel on task to answer the questions and give the opportunity for you later this evening to ask some of your own questions. Does that sound like a plan? Yes? yes? Right. So, part of what I know will make a great session is if you engage. If you expect to sit here and pass the time, either by listening to that voice in your head, 
rather than the voices on the front of the room, or checking your phone, and unless you're doing some social media work, hey, I'm at the Kell State Long Beach, love that, like the footprint, but if it's anything other than that, pictures of the cats, I'm a sucker for those dog movies, you know, on Facebook, I don't know, you have Facebook, remember Facebook? That's what the older generation is now using, your grandparents, me, my wife, we love it. Okay, so let's get started, get this party started. All right. The book that I'm working on, just wanted to mention to you, because you might want to see it in the bookstore and buy it. The title is Killing Cats Leads to Rats. And just this morning, I wrote the final chapter of this 14-chapter book. So can I get a round of applause? Finally getting that done. We haven't the consequences. Uh, Killing Cats Leads to Rats. It's about all the things in business that can go terribly wrong and screw up your best laid plans. Anybody ever have a big plan, say it hits the bat and it doesn't work out for you? It happens in business. How many of you, when you're done with school, want to be an entrepreneur? Show me your hands. Anybody want to run their own business and not work for the man? Put it up proud. Come on. <laughs> the rest of you just want to suckle at the feet of a corporate world. Is that what you want to do? What? You just want to be a cog in the wheel? Yes? That's what I like. I was a cog in the wheel for longer than most of you have been alive, and let me tell you, it works both ways, but at some point in your life, I challenge you in this great capitalist society we call the United States to bet on yourself. You might just get bigger rewards for it. But anyway, all right. Allow me the privilege of introducing our three panelists. And I will go in order closest to me. This is Mr. Mor Morlin Fisher. Say hello to Mr. Fisher. You can call him Morlin, we're friends. Okay. Morlin has been a licensed patent attorney since, may I say it? 1975! So Where were you in 1975? I hope I'm older than I was. Yes. 1975. He has prepared and filed over 750 patent applications, over 900 trademark applications in the United States as well as foreign countries. We totally disrespect our patent laws. Mr. Fisher served as the president of the Orange County Intellectual Property Law Association from 2000 to 2001, and is the recipient of the first Orange County Intellectual Property Law Association Past President's Award in 2016. In addition to his practice, Mr. Fisher has been an adjunct professor for Coastline Community College and has served as an expert witness in patent and trademark cases. Give him a round of applause and thank you for being here. Come on! He's got better things to do on Tuesday night. For God's sake. <laughs> Never sleeps this man. Let's introduce Robert. We can call him Bob Larson. Say hello to Mr. Larson. Hello. Mr. Larson is an AB preeminent rated patent attorney. I'm going to ask you, that sounds really impressive. Uh, patent attorney litigating primarily patent and trademark cases. Since 1994, it's a little more recent, and manages Lawson and Traver, LLP, in El Segundo. For 12 years, we'll call him Bob, was the trademark counsel for, you ready for this? In and Out Burger. Huh? Talk to me. Who doesn't like an In 
outbursts. People come around the world to eat those in and outbursts. Frankly, I don't like the lunch. I think it's a little too long. They need to figure that out. Prior to his legal career, he was an aerospace engineer at Northrop and McDonnell Douglas. He has two daughters, 16 and 18, neither of whom want to be a lawyer. Give Bob a round of applause. Okay, we're about 12 minutes in, ladies and gentlemen. Last but not least, Venus Griffith Trunnell specializes in the area of domestic and international trademark prosecution and the ever-elusive enforcement, right? She assists clients with a broad range of copyright and trademark matters. Mrs. Trunnell is an adjunct professor, so not only are they practicing professionals, they're giving back through teaching. How wonderful is that? At Trinity Law School in Orange County, she teaches intellectual property law and legal research and writing. She's a, oh boy, she's a former trademark examiner with the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Great experience, right, on the other side of it. She resides in Rancho Cucamonga, all the way from Rancho Cucamonga tonight, my God, Rancho Cucamonga with her husband and twins, age 14. Give Venus a round of applause. Trademarks could be so much fun, right? <laughs> Anybody want to be a lawyer? Anybody here because you wanted someday you want to be on this panel? Maybe? All right, I like that. Hopefully, by the time you're here, I can still be standing here moderating on your behalf. Huh? We can all hope and wish, right? All right, let's get this started. Just last thing, I, I hold two trademarks in my profession. One for a term, this book, CEO Peer Groups. CEO Peer Groups, I own that. And I own the term critical mass. Well, Owen's probably a strong word. Lawyers. I have the rights to use critical mass as my company's name and as a registered trademark. So I am a practicing entrepreneur who have navigated these treacherous waters of intellectual property law. So, I'm going to start by asking this question. If possible, I would like each of you to discuss a memorable IP story. Huh? How about that? Something funny or ironic. I'm not setting the bar too high, am I? Funny and ironic? We're all good for that, right? So, let's start... Since Moreland was the first one here, let's start with Mr. Fisher giving us an IP story that's interesting. So this story happened early in my career. I was visited by a carpenter who told me that he invented a new motor. Little did I know how unique this motor was going to be. So I was impressed he was a carpenter who came up with a motor and he wanted to file patent applications. So I proceeded to prepare the patent applications. Fast forward about two or three weeks, a friend of mine who I met in engineering school in Philadelphia, we decided to go see the Philadelphia Flyers play the Los Angeles Kings. I'm from Philadelphia, old habits die hard. And we had to go to the forum. Staples Center didn't exist, the Flyers always won. Things are different today. <laughs> So the game is over, we're driving home. 
And after the recap, we're listening to AM radio, and the, the news headlines say, police raided a machine shop with guns drawn and seized a motor and took it into police headquarters. So I wasn't paying really close attention, but I said, oh my goodness, that sounds like my client and my client's motor. So I turned to my friend who was driving and I said, what have I gotten myself into? So the client had to hire a criminal defense lawyer. And the criminal defense lawyer asked me to appear in criminal court to try and get the motor back. Apparently what had happened, my client needed money to build and test his motor. So without telling me or anybody else, I guess he decided to issue shares of stock. Buy some shares, pay some money, get an ownership interest in my motor. So I presume that when the ownership rights went over 100%, somebody complained to the police. And the police decided that this had to be a scam. So with guns drawn, this is what the news reports, they broke into his machine shop and confiscated the motor. So the criminal lawyer and I appeared in Superior Court in Los Angeles, and we had a meeting in chambers with the judge. And I'm trying to explain to the judge that this person raising money, it's going into patent applications, he's got a motor, we're moving ahead to try to commercialize it and patent it. Give the motor back, give him a break. Now this attorney wasn't too happy because I'm not a criminal lawyer, I'm there pleading on behalf of my client and trying to say how good my client is and how great his invention is, he should give the client another chance. And I guess I was persuasive because the judge said, okay, we're gonna release the motor, we're not going to charge you with any crime because basically he was offering an unregistered security which is against the law in California. You can't simply go around and say, I got a great product, I want to sell stock, buy some, give me money. You have to register this with the state. So the judge said, I'm going to release my your motor, but don't do it again. So the client gets the motor back, and he's building an experiment, and he's got people helping him. And they're starting to call me and tell me, oh, the motor works great. Any piece of metal that's put in the vicinity of the electromagnetic field created by the motor is levitating. Things are floating across the room. And I'm going, oh my goodness, I can't believe what I'm hearing. Then he tells me that parts of the motor, all bearings, the metallurgical structure of these parts is being changed because they're in the magnetic field, the electromagnetic field of the motor. So, you know, I have a degree in electrical engineering and I'm saying, wait a minute, this is a little bit too spooky to believe. So I contacted a friend of mine, one of the smarter people I knew who had a PhD in physics, and I said to the client, look, it's not that I don't believe you, I have to go and look. I want to bring this guy down, take a look at what you have. But before I could do that, I guess the client ran out of money again. So what did he do? He did what he knows best. He offered more stock. And you gotta remember, he was already at 100% or over. So I guess some of the people that he offered the stock to complained 
They went back to the police. They seized the motor again. This time he went back to criminal court and went off to jail. And this was the end of my patent application process and my relationship with the lawyer. But I've shortened this story to make it more compact, but it was one of my more interesting experiences in my career. So the lesson here is, if you're gonna raise funds, sell less than 100%. <laughs> All right, we start off on a strong note. follow, but it's up to you, sir. Would you like to add a story? Sure. Thanks for the question, Rick. That is a little hard to follow. I, I have a few examples to kind of give you a flavor of what it's like to practice in, in IP litigation, and I brought along a few props, and, and uh, we've represented a number of smaller companies, and, and they've been sued by larger competitors, and this happens a lot. And usually the claims are overreaching and they're trying to uh, basically suppress competition. And so we were representing a full equipment company in, in San Diego, Aquastar Pool Products, and they decided they, they wanted to get in the business of selling replacement parts for these robotic uh, pool cleaners. This is a robotic pool, uh, pool cleaner, and you hook it up to your hose, and it goes around in the pool and it sucks up debris, and, and that goes in the bag. And so we, the manufacturer of this item was, although the patents had expired, they, they were unhappy that someone else was trying to sell replacement parts on their unit. And so they invented a way to try and sue our client based on what's called trade dress. And trade dress has to do with sometimes the, the uh, look of a product functioning as a trademark. And what they said here was that the three the fact that this item had three wheels meant that people just looked at it and they knew that it was came from a particular manufacturer. But, but what happened in that case is that, as, as you might find out if you study more in this area, is that utility patents and trade dress are kind of like oil and water. They, 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 never, they never go together. You, you basically have to choose. You can't have both. And so that case got thrown out and then in mediation, they ended up paying my client a bunch of money, you know, just to go away, even though we were the defendant. So that, that, that was one example. And then another more recent one is, is you probably see these bottles around at pretty much every convenience store, gas station, five-hour energy bottles. And they, and they, have, they have about a 90% market share, and, and so they're very, Ruthless, and anyone who dares to compete with them gets sued for one reason or another. So, we were re representing a, a client who decided to sell these energy shots in this little paper pouch. And, and Five Hour Energy said that, that customers would get confused and think that these products came from the same company. You know, they look so much alike, and <laughs> that, that was their theory anyway. And so, that case similarly. Uh, settled in a way that our client, the defendant, received a bunch of money just, just to go away. And then another example is we represented a, we represented a small client in, in also in Orange County, uh, Spellbound, and they make these box cutters, and you can see this has a little, a, uh, a little hood that goes over the blade and it articulates out of the way when you use it, and so it's, it's a good uh, safety 
feature, and they had some patents. And anytime you're successful with most any product, patents or not, it's, it's going to get knocked off. And, and so this was a product that Stanley, the world's largest hardware company, decided they wanted to sell in, in Home Depot. And they and so we sued them, and they hired some very aggressive lawyers. But their lawyers were so aggressive, they started saying just the fact that we sued them was harming their reputation. And so we were able to get our client's insurance policy, which covers defamation, to pay for the lawsuit. And so that was the way that we kind of evened the uh, playing field against against that company. So I thought that the, just these three cases just tend to show the use and abuse of intellectual property among companies of varying resources and how it yeah. most of the time works out. Not yeah. always. Sounds like it worked out every time for you. Let's give a round of applause. Come on, man. Okay, Venus, they keep up in the ante. It's your turn. Can you hear me okay? Um, okay, my horror story or war story with intellectual property happened last year. I was hired by a company <coughs> that designed Betting uh, to uh, assert their tri trademark rights against their former uh, exclusive sales agent. They had a relationship with this exclusive sales agent where uh, the agent sold their product exclusively, and then my client was on the hook for the purchase order, for the distribution, for making sure that the client actually got, the uh, ultimate buyer got the goods. And so the exclusive sales agent uh, decided that they wanted to go out on their own. and basically compete with my client. And so I sent them a I sent the agent um, a cease and desist letter because we had superior trademark rights um, based on uh, the information given to me. My client had common law trademark rights, which means they have rights based on their use in commerce. They did not have a federal registration. Well, during, during this process, I find out that the exclusive sales agent had already filed a trademark application several months prior to uh, severing the, the initial relationship they had with my client, so, several months before going out on their own. And so I kept asking, do you have an agreement? Is there any type of agreement that covers the intellectual property? We also had the exclusive sales agent ask my client, can I use your trademark? My client was unequivocal and said, no, you cannot use our name, it is our trademark. You can sell your own betting goods, but not under my trademark. So the day after we had this meeting, my client gets a lawsuit, this is here in California, is sued by the exclusive sales agent for copyright infringement. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Where did the copyrights come in? So it turns out that under the relationship, the exclusive sales agent, their designers were the ones who would create the patterns that would go on the bed. And they had copyright registrations for that. And so they sued my client in Texas 
in uh, federal court. Actually, no, they sued them, sued them in state court. And they had a faulty complaint because they had no copyright registration. And in order to sue to assert your rights for copyright, you have to have a registration. They didn't have that, so their, their complaint was faulty. So this was all in the middle of me trying to uh, assert my client's trademark rights. And we were in the process of suing uh, them for trademark infringement. So I hired, I don't do litigation, so I hired a litigation firm to help me. And I, the whole time I'm asking them, what do you have, what do you have, what do you have? So we get to the meeting, and lo and behold, there is a purchase agreement, an asset purchase agreement between the sales agent and the company she, brought it, she bought it from. And the agreement, even though it did not relate specifically to trademarks, there was an intellectual property clause that said <coughs> all rights in intellectual property went from the seller to the buyer, which was the exclusive sales agent. So it was just a mess. And um, so we ended up suing, so there's three cases going. There's my case before the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board asking them to cancel the trademark registration. That's an administrative hearing. Then we have the lawsuit where we're defending ourselves against the copyright claim. And then there's a third lawsuit that we file here in California for trademark infringement. So all of this is happening at the same time. So we have several, several lawyers um, discussing this case and coming up with a strategy and so because it was Chinese New Year's coming up and my client was Chinese, they decided that they just wanted this over with. And so they flew to Texas and settled the case for millions of dollars, gave away the trademark rights, even though they had strong trademark rights. And ultimately, it was a business decision and all of the attorneys were left with what just happened. <laughs> you know, we're all gearing up for litigation and our different individual parts of the case. And, uh, and so they basically gave away their trademark rights. It would have been like they was changing the copyright, the rights that the defendant had or the sales agent had and the copyright would have been offset with the rights that my client had in the trademark. And rather than assert those rights, they gave them up and they spent millions of dollars to do it. And uh, we just were left with kind of cleaning it all up and, you know, withdrawing all of our uh, relative uh, lawsuits and uh, just transferring the trademark rights. And really, my client made a business decision. They just didn't want to open their books. And when we started digging into the relationship, uh, you know, they just didn't want to do it because they really didn't have clean hands open. There is the moral of the story. Let's give her a round of applause. So we're talking legal terms. And don't forget, there are business people who are either wanting to just get it settled quickly or not want to go through all this for other business reasons. So just remember, those of you that are planning to be entrepreneurs, make friends of the students in undergrad who are going to law school because you might need them and you may want to trade on your current relationship. We're about a half, we're halfway, well, half hour in. You're a half hour in, how are you feeling? About 30 minutes, we're gonna run this, uh, we're gonna run this up till about six, 
about an hour from now, a little bit less than an hour from now. So anybody have a class later and ask and already tell me again, you have a class later tonight? Don't lie to me because I'll be following you around the campus. <laughs> and, and I hope this isn't inappropriate, but I just wanted you all to know that Russell Wilson, the quarterback of the Seattle Seahawks, is in the house. Would you stand up, Russell? You, right here, you. No, you, you look like Russell Wilson. Stand up, you look like Russell Wilson to me. Does he look like Russell Wilson to you? Does anybody else think this gentleman looks like Russell Wilson? It's just me. Come on, Thank you for coming tonight all the way from Seattle. Move on to define some terms because we're in a college campus. We've got to learn something today. First term I'm going to ask you to define. We're going to have three of them. This is the first one. If those of you who are taking notes, write this down. Let's talk about copyright. Moreland, what is a copyright? And briefly, how does the law protect it? Okay, simply put, a copyright is the right to control original works of authorship that are fixed in a tangible medium. But what does that mean? So, first off, you have to be the author. You have to be the creator of the work. There is something called a work for hire. You can also be considered the author if your employee is hired to do a specific task, and that task is part of your business and the employee solves that task, which is copyrightable. Even though he's really the creator, for purposes of copyright, you will be considered as the employer. You're the author. That's called a work for hire. As a recommendation, if you ever hire people to create copyrighted works or original works, you really should have a contract. You need to have an employment contract, or you should have an individual contract which specifies to the employee, I'm hiring you for this purpose. This will be considered a work for hire for copyright purposes. If you don't do that, the employee could say, I have no agreement to give you my copyright rights. I'm giving you a license only, and I'm keeping the title for myself. So good idea, if you come down the road and you're hiring people to do independent work for you, and you want to retain the copyright rights, make sure you have an agreement. Now, unlike the patent office, the copyright office doesn't examine copyrightable subject matter for novelty. Any copyrighted subject matter, two-dimensional, three-dimensional, audio, video works, has to have some degree of originality. But it is possible to have more than one copyright for the same work. For example, I take a picture, a photograph of the Empire State Building. I'm not trying to copyright the Empire State Building, but my photograph has some originality. I'm the author, I took the picture. It has originality. The shading, the light, where I stand, the view, the shutter setting. That photograph is an original creativity. I'm the author. So I could secure copyright protection for that work. Russell Wilson over there, when he's not playing football, he goes to the same place and independently, it's original. He doesn't copy from me. He takes his own camera and takes his own picture. He creates an original work which is closely resembling my work, but it's original to him. He didn't copy. So in that case, unlike patents, where the patent office is going to do a search to make sure you don't have two inventions that are the same, 
you could get copyright protection for two words that are essentially identical, provided that they're original, no copy. Now, the last thing I said, it has to be fixed in a tangible medium. What that means is the word you're trying to protect has to be fixed on something tangible, like a compact disc, like a piece of paper in a book, like a piece of film. Now, if it's not fixed in a tangible medium, it's not protectable as a copyright. So this talk that I'm giving, if one of you is taking notes and you wanted to talk tomorrow and use my information, could I sue you for a copyright infringement? No, because my talk is not fixed in a tangible medium. It's floating in the ether. So in order to have copyright protection, the work has to be fixed in some form of tangible medium. Videotape, compactness, something tangible. So that is a basic explanation of what a copyright is and what you have to do to have copyright rights. That was outstanding. Thank you. And by the way, I am recording this on an MP3 recorder, which maybe would qualify as a fixed. I think it would. All right. This is all copyrighted. You. This will be available on iTunes tomorrow under Critical Mass Radio Show. You should subscribe to it. We do these shows once a week. And if you're an Android person, we're on Stitcher and Spreaker. So it's not just all about Apple. Although my sense is the demographic in the room, there's probably a lot of Apple devices in this house. All right. Maybe, Bob, you could help talk about best practices as it relates to copyright for entrepreneurs and small business owners. Could you? Sure, I'd be happy to. Thank you. When you create uh, any kind of work of art, actually you automatically get a copyright, but there's, it's very advantageous to register your work. Because what, what you do is you uh, fill out a form, you make a copy of the work, you send, you send it into the copyright office, and then as Moreland mentioned, it's not really examined, they just stamp it off if you fill out the form correctly. The fee is low, less than $50. And it gives you some important rights going forward because the copyright law really has a lot of teeth in it, but it all depends on this registration. And so that's the number one advice, I think, to, to most individuals and small businesses register. Because what happens if you ever have a copying problem, then you can, you're entitled to statutory damages of up to $150,000 per work infringed, and you don't have to prove your actual damages. And also, you're, you're entitled to have your attorney's fees reimbursed. And so that, that really gives you a big step to go after anyone who copies any of your work. And then my second tip would be, based on my first tip, is copying other people's works online. A lot of people get caught up in that. They see a photograph, they see something on someone else's website, they put it on their own website. Or maybe their webmaster puts it on the website and they don't even know. And then they get a cease and desist letter from somebody. I had a client who was a sports photographer and he put up all his photos on, on those on one of those sites where they have all the photos and you can license the photos. And every so often someone would take his photos and boy, I can tell you that person would be sorry because you, you know, if, you're, if your work is registered and it gets copied, you really have a big stick to, to go after people. So, uh, so that and not 
taking other people's works online and just using them. Those, those would be my key advice for small businesses. You're a litigator, correct? Correct. Okay, so one of the things that I do know about lawyers, I don't know a lot, and our son is one, but other than that, you know, it's a very confusing profession to me, a lot of specialization. Be careful around the litigators, though. They tend to be some of the more aggressive lawyers that you can be in the same room with. That's just my outside opinion as a layperson. I might be all wet on that, Bob, but maybe so some, it's true. Some of my colleagues are like that. Okay, not you, though. All right. Does... Here's a chance, before I have a scripted question I want to ask Venus, but before we do that, I wanted to just take a minute and see, does anyone in the audience have a specific question that's burning that they want to be brave enough to stand up and ask one of these three fine attorneys? Does anyone have a question? It only takes one, brave one. Sir, your name? Logan. Logan, stand up. Speak loudly, because I'm recording back here. What's your question, Logan? I want to know what Mordlin's client's motor turned out to really be. <laughs> <laughs> a burning question in all of our... Let's thank Logan for asking the question, David. Well, the funny thing about that story is I wondered the same thing. <laughs> you have to remember, this is everything I said is true. With the guns are blazing and the, the seizing the motor. So when I told the client that I didn't necessarily believe, and you know, it's not up to me to criticize my client from a business standpoint. So he tells me, and I'm actually speaking on the phone to some of his coworkers, that things are levitating. Electromagnetic field created by this motor, and it's causing things on the workbench to levitate. I simply didn't believe it. So when I told him, I wanted to bring a colleague of mine who had a PhD in physics. We wanted to come down and actually see the motor. You can do a patent application on the basis of drawings. A client comes to me, he brings sketches, and I never have to actually see the invention. It's a good idea to see it, but it was a motor. It's not something you can easily put in the car and drive. So I never got to see it. And I take my clients at good faith. So I said, seeing is believing. I want to bring an expert. I want to take a look at the motor. But before I could do that, that's when he went out and started to raise more money by selling more stock. And when they shut him down this time, the district attorney was firm, and the judge in this case said, you violated a court order. I have ordered you not to do this again. And when he did it, it wasn't so much that he was perpetrating a scam, which I didn't think he was. I thought he was genuine in his efforts. But he violated a court order. He was in contempt of court. And that's what sent him to jail. And since that happened so quickly to my offer to come down and look, I actually never found out whether or not it could work. So I really don't know. But you know, when somebody comes into you and says they have a perpetual motion machine, if you have a scientific background, you have to scratch your head and say, I don't believe it. So when he tells me things are levitating and his Co-workers were saying, oh, things are flying across. Uh, I simply didn't believe it. But to answer your question, unfortunately, I never had the time and opportunity to actually go down and look because I really wanted to do that. <laughs> Thank you, Moreland. Thank you, Logan. Let's, uh, well, yeah, come on, yeah. Come on. All right. Um, I said we're going to talk, teach, cover three topics. 
three technical terms that you're going to leave here knowing. The first one was copyright. Yeah, baby. So let's move on now. Let's talk about trademarks and service marks. And for that subject, I'm going to turn our attention to Venus. Venus, could you give us an overview of trademarks and service marks? Absolutely. Thank you. Okay, a trademark. A trademark is a source identifier. It is a word, name, phrase, slogan, logo, symbol, sound, shape, color, smell, or any other indicator of commercial identity. Um, and it identifies a source so that when you see a Nike swoosh and you don't see Nike, you know that it came from Nike. So that's the point of a trademark. It is to allow you to compete in the marketplace and to have goodwill in the what you put into your mark so that your uh, competitors cannot trade on your goodwill and come close to what you've done. So if you're at, as Nike, you've put a whole lot of money into um, building your brand, asserting your brand, and then someone comes up with a backward swoosh and they try to sell athletic wear or shoes. And so uh, you would not want them to do that because you might be confused as to think, oh, well, Nike has a, a new logo, a new play on your logo. You think it's Nike. So that's what trademark. Um, trademarks attached to goods. A service mark is the same thing. It's just that you're providing services under the mark, not, not selling any type of good or product. They distinguish the origin of the goods and services from others of a similar sort in the marketplace. Uh, they enhance the efficiency by reducing confusion among consumers. And that's a big part that trademark law protects. It protects you as the consumer from being confused. Um, when you see a bag that is a Louis Vuitton bag, you know that probably that person paid a lot of money for it. Right, But if it's a different bag and it doesn't have an LV, but it has a UV, but it's that same color brown vinyl, then you're like wondering like, okay, is that, is that Louis Vuitton or not, right? And then if that bag is falling apart, then you are hurting the trademark brand of Louis Vuitton. And so, the trademark or service mark is to protect you as the consumer from being duped into thinking you're buying Louis Vuitton when you're not, or you're buying Nike when you're buying something else. Outstanding. Yeah, baby. Good example. All right. So we'll work back this way, Bob. Since you're the litigator in the house, can you talk about times when people have either disparaged the, the trademark or there's been a case about a trademark or some type of uh, action? Because the question I have, maybe some free legal advice, we talked about the Nike swoosh. The critical mass for business, this is what I would like to turn into whenever you see this, you think of what? Rick Franzi and critical mass for business. Can I do that? Is that a possibility? Can I make this my Nike swoosh? And if so, will you defend me, Bob, when they come after me? <laughs> Well, it'll, it'll probably take maybe a billion dollars worth of advertising. Ah. Okay, well, we'll take some time. Social media. But, but you, you made a reference to uh, trademarks as far as being disparaging, and, and that can be a problem when you go to register your mark. And actually, a couple of years ago, the trademark law was actually on the front page of all the newspapers. It's, it's the only time I ever remember that <laughs> happening. And, th and that was when the 
Washington Redskins registration was canceled at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and it was can it was canceled because they, they there's a part of the Lanham Act which is, is the trademark law that says trademarks that are immoral or scandalous can't be registered. So, for example, if you try to register something with the F word or you know Washington Redskins. Or the, and there's also a recent example. There's an Asian American band called the Slants, and uh, their registration has run into some problems. And that's before the U.S. Supreme Court presently. So this is an area where things are are you know st still being sorted out. And then another another kind of interesting area that that's perhaps somewhat related is if you try to register your mark for any kind of goods or services related to marijuana, although it's becoming legal in California, according to the federal government, it's not legal. And so if you want to start any kind of marijuana business, you're going to have to do so without a, without a federal registration. And so what happens, for example, like with the Washington Redskins, when they want to use all the federal laws of counterfeiting against people selling unauthorized Redskins Apparel, let's say a swap meet or something like that. They don't have those law those laws available to them because that mark's not registered anymore. Great, thank you. Interesting. <laughs> so my watch says we have about thirty minutes or so. So are you up for another thirty minutes? Can you hang with us for another thirty minutes, ladies and gentlemen? Yes. Yes. Thank you. Does anyone have a question before we move along with the prepared? Stand up, say your name, and then we'll come to you. Kids, voice first. Go ahead. I just want to move the, the vacuum because I can't see Venus. Oh, move the vacuum. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I got it. I'm on it. I'm, oh, I'm hiding behind it. So you didn't have a question. You no. just wanted to be helpful. Thank you. What is your name? Uh, my name is Jason. Jason, what is your question? Hi, uh, I have a question for you, Mr. Lawson. I was wondering, uh, you mentioned immoral uh, you know, trademarks. How would Hooters uh, be protected? If, I mean, that could be argued as immoral. Yeah, I, I would think that it's registered and it's, it's not quite as immoral enough. That it's <laughs> crossed the line. And that's one of the problems with that rule. And, and one of the ways it's being challenged at the U.S. Supreme Court is that it's, that it's, that it's just vague. And it's not clear which marks are registered and which are not. I'm going to jump in for a second because hopefully we have a liberal audience. So I had a client come to me and say, I want to register the trademark balls for underpants, men's underpants. So I filed a trademark application and trademark office refused to register, saying balls was defamatory or scandalous. Actually, scandalous is the word from the statute. But I said, you know, balls can have more than one meaning. And what the client did to avoid this problem, if you look at his underpants, he had all these football pictures and baseball pictures. So I said, the balls that he's referring to are not of the human anatomy, but of various sporting balls. So you have to look at the mark the way it's used on the goods. And in this case, I said it had a pure 
purely innocent meaning. The examiner agreed, withdrew the rejection, and the case went on to a house. Hey. Yeah, Venus, bring it on. Um, as a former examiner, uh, what happens is uh, it's very subjective, so it really depends. So when we would get an application like that, we would basically go around to our colleagues and say, what do you think about this? <laughs> Should I reject this? Um, and so you kind of get a general sense, but what he's saying is usually the trademark office will initially refuse the application. And it's up to you as the attorney, that was some good uh, attorney some, uh, work, to decide that or to argue for your client that look, you have to look at this in the whole context. What is the context? <coughs> And that's one of the things that we look at in trademark law to determine if you're infringing. It's all based on the context. And so by, your client was smart in utilizing uh, sports laws on, as part of the logo because it gave it a different connotation. So it kind of took it out of that. So a lot of times we'll, we'll reject it, but we want on record, we want the attorney to make the argument so that we can have something to back up our reason for pushing it through. Because we, get, we would get dinged for pushing something through that shouldn't have been registered. Um, and so really it basically just worked out that way. Wow, that is really good. But, yeah. Okay. So maybe very well be then the owl that's on the trademark as well? It's the eyes. The eyes on the, the owl? Eyes. Like the, that's why I get away with it, because the two Oh, those are eyes of the owl. Uh, all their shirts. They're not, obviously, if you look at it, it's, it's not supposed to be eyes, but that's <laughs> what they are. Like, when you look at them. Okay. Hey, great. Peer learning here, see? This is what I believe in. How many of you believe in your time here at this wonderful university that you've learned at least something from a fellow student? Anybody? Anybody believe they've learned quite a lot from each other? Your cohorts. What I do for a living is make sure when you become an entrepreneur in the wild, wild world of business, you're not all alone. You surround yourself like you do here with a cohort of other business owners who you can share your experiences with. Don't lose the power of peer learning just because you're someday going to graduate and go off on your own. All right, so we've covered two of the three topics, right? The first one was? Okay, and the second one we just finished talking about was? What's that leave? I heard it. Patent. Yes, all right. So I'm going to start with Moreland, yes, and ask you to talk a bit about patents. How many of you have actually ever seen what a patent looks like? So I'm going to show you, because if you're going to be an entrepreneur or a business person, you got to know what a patent means. So you get a nice seal. There's three parts to every patent. There's drawings, which illustrate what the invention is. Then there's text, which describe how the invention works. The shin bone is connected to the knee bone. The knee bone is connected to the thigh bone. And then at the end of every patent is a bunch of very legalistic paragraphs called claims. The claims identify what the improvement is. The claims are written in legalistic, hard to understand language. 
So patent attorneys like me can charge a lot of money. <laughs> so I'm going to clear up a couple of misconceptions. The biggest misconception that I find from clients that you need to remember, people come into me and say, oh, I hear that if you change an invention by 20%, you don't have to worry about infringement. Not so. There is no such thing, there is no percentage. So how do you determine what a patent covers? You have to look at the claims. Remember, there's pictures, text, and at the end, claims. The claims define the invention. You can have two different patents, and you can say, oh, the drawings look the same. How did this guy get a patent? They're virtually identical. You must read the claims, because the claims define what the invention is. So if you're going to try to determine if you're an infringer, you read the claims. If, you, if your improvement or your invention is readable on the claims, then you're an infringer. If you can read those claims and the claims call for limitations that you don't have, then you're not an infringer. You look at the claims. So with the three parts of the patents, you look at the claims to determine whether or not you're an infringer. Now I'm going to say one brief word about the difference between patentability and infringement. Infringement is decided by the courts. If somebody wants to sue you for infringement, someone like Robert would take that matter up with the courts. The courts in the United States have exclusive jurisdiction on patent matters. Any patent issue that's litigated has to be in federal court. So Robert would be there, and Robert would be comparing the claims of an issued patent with an allegedly infringing device to see if there was a one-to-one -one correspondence. Patentability is decided by the patent laws. Infringement, courts. Patentability, I want a patent. That's decided by the patent laws. You submit a patent application, you have an invention. The patent office doesn't care about the claims. The patent office does not care whether you infringe. The trademark office really doesn't care whether you infringe. That's an issue for the courts. So what the patent office does, they look at the text and the drawings. Remember, the claims are looked at by the court. The patent office looks at all these texts and drawings to see whether or not your invention is distinguishable. Now remember, when I talked about copyrights, I say the copyright office doesn't do a search. You could have two copyrightable subject matters that are registered to two independent creators. But in the patent law, they do a search. The patent office does a search. Only one patent can issue for any one invention. So the patent office is going to compare your invention and your patent application with all the other patents that have been filed since the beginning of time. Patents expire, but they fall into the public domain, and you can't get a second patent on an invention that was previously patented and the patent had expired. So your invention has to be new for all time. And the patent office will simply compare what you see in the text and drawing with your invention. If there's something you need, you get a patent. If not, then not. The last thing I'm going to say about the patent issue is, in the United States, it's the first to file. So if you have an invention and you're going to file a patent application, the sooner the better. There's different ways to do it, and I'm not going to take up any time, but there's something called a provisional patent application that you can do yourself. But whoever files first, not whoever invents first, whoever files first is going to be entitled to the patent. So 
The law does not award those who sit on their hands. So if you're an entrepreneur or a business owner or an independent person and you have an invention, you should move quickly towards filing a patent application. Otherwise, if you wait too long, your patent rights could be lost. Thank you. All right. Uh, I'd like to open it up to any other questions from... Yes, in the back. Please stand up, say your name, and ask your question. Hello, I'm Mia. My question is, um, well, first off, thank you so much for spending your Tuesday night to educate us on intellectual property. But my question is, what's the turnaround time for getting patents? Because we always hear, like, I think that there are certain moments when I'll, I'll watch TV now, I'll hear the words patent pending. And so I was wondering what the turnaround time is to receive something, uh, a patent. Okay, so the patent office has a plan to try and actually examine patents, patent applications within 14 months after they're filed. But you know what's happening? The number of patent applications that are being filed on a yearly basis is increasing dramatically. And the reason for that is you're finding a lot of citizens and inventors in foreign countries that are filing U.S. patents. Patent protection is vital. If you're a startup, with one or two products, the only way you can protect yourself against larger companies stealing your intellectual property is to patent. And what's happening, you're finding a lot of people in foreign countries, Europe and China, that are now filing patent applications in the United States. There's no requirement that a patent applicant be a U.S. citizen. I file patent applications for my clients around the world. Likewise, inventors around the world file patent applications in the United States. And the number of new applications is so great that the patent office doesn't have enough personnel to, to manage them. So what they do, if the, the patent office has a deadline, whether it's 14 months, it may have changed. If the patent office takes longer to examine and issue your patent than they're originally allowed, they will actually extend the life of the patent. Congress said inventors shouldn't suffer because the patent office is understaffed. So a patent is good for 20 years from its original filing date, 20 years, and then your invention goes in the public domain to be freely used by everyone. However, if the patent office takes longer to examine and issue a patent than whatever that allotted time is, they will actually extend the life of the patent beyond the 20-year period. But they try to have a 14-month, they may have changed 14-month period to examine it. But the truth is, you're lucky from filing to issue to have that happen within two years you're looking at at least, you're going to be pending for two years before your patent issues. Great. Thank you. Very good question. Thank you very much. We're going to... Okay. Hey. All right. Bob, what is a patent troll? You know, you hear a lot about patent trolls in, in the news, and it's, it's a derogatory term, and what it refers to is what's known as a... Uh, non-practicing entity who enforces a patent in a way that's far beyond the patent value. And, and let me explain that a little bit. The way the whole, the whole patent system is grounded in the fact that you, know, you invent some gadget and it's, and, it's, and it's novel and it's some kind of improvement over, over the prior art. And so the government will, if you send in your patent application and, and if, if your patent is granted, then the government gives you a, a, this limited monopoly for 20 years. Only you can practice that invention. And so that's an incentive for you to, to bring it to market because if we didn't have a patent system, if, you know, as soon as you brought a product to market, if it was just going to be copied and knocked off, why, why would you even bother? 
So that's the whole idea. But these not practicing entities, you know, people who just own patents but they don't produce anything or, or and you know, and they, and they go around suing people, and it's it's just cause a lot of disruption. And, and they tend to have a type of patent called a business method patent. And, and let me briefly ex explain that. Uh, before about 1995, business methods didn't used to be patentable at all. That's something like let's say the let's say the, the way Uber operates. I, I presume they have some patents on their on their business methods, but it used to be that wasn't patentable at all. But that all changed in the 1990, and then they said everything under the sun was patentable. And then they gave a, a patent to Amazon for their one-click ordering. I assume you might you might be familiar with that. And people said, oh, that's just so trivial. You know, why would you give a patent out on that? And so over the last 20 years or so, the, the law has kind of been struggling to, to figure this out and balance it because we want to reward companies like Uber who, you know, come up with a, a new great system for taxing people around, but at the same time, uh, you know, I'll give you an example. When I was representing In-N-Out, somebody had some kind of patent on what was known as brand mapping, and that's the feature on your phone where, you know, for any kind of chain of businesses, it'll, it'll show, like, where they're all located and how to get to the nearest one and so forth, and so forth. So, you know, people, you know, businesses, these trolls, they, they have patents on certain things that really aren't worth very much and they go around suing people and they just, just they disrupt the you know, businesses and for example with eBay uh, they have that buy it now feature and you know initially somebody had a patent on that and they tried to sh you know to shut down eBay with that patent and, and so what's happening is through the case law they're trying to they're trying to clamp down on this and uh, let, let me just real quick jump to the next topic too. It, it, it's kind of strange, but about 40% of all the patent infringement suits filed now are in one court in the Eastern District of Texas. It's these two small towns, Marshall, Texas, and Tyler, Texas. And so you might ask why that's happening. And so there's a little bit of a problem in the patent <coughs> venue statute. And so all these patent trolls, they sue, they bring all their cases in the Eastern District of Texas because that court has a reputation for being friendly to patent trolls and for also being what's known as a rocket docket. In other words, the cases are decided very quickly. And so that's another issue that's kind of percolating in the, in the patent law. And there's a case before the U.S. Supreme Court now that's, that everyone's expecting it's going to change the interpretation of the venue statute. And so that's just what happens. There's a lot of you know, the IP, there's a lot of good uses of it, but there's a lot of abuse as well. And, uh, you know, us as lawyers, those are the things that we deal with on, on a regular basis. Thank you. All right. Uh, Venus, would you like to add anything to the conversation that we've had up to this point from your experience on patents, patent infringement, patent protection? Is there any other thing that these young, bright minds need to know about before we move on? I don't really practice patents. I teach patents, so I defer to my state colleagues on it. Um, I 
whatever they say. <laughs> All, right. All right, so I have a final question for these three, but before we go there, final question meaning that we'll probably be finished when they're finished each answering it, is there any question left from you that you just want to ask while you have the opportunity? Hand in the back. Love the back row. What is your name? Okay, so thank you, thank you. Remember, I'm recording what we're being said here. It's going to be out on the internet tomorrow. I'm going to answer that question. Ray Kroc did, in fact, steal the McDonald's trademark. But, so you have these little McDonald's guys in some city in Kansas or wherever they were, in, in California, I guess. And then you have McDonald's, a multi-billion dollar company. So you're a business person, right? And somebody takes your trademark. They have a billion dollars to play with. You may have something less. You have the option to sue them for trademark infringement and possibly mortgage your business and your life. Would you want to do it? So if McDonald's comes to you and says, you know what? We'll give you a million dollars. We're infringers. You're absolutely right. We admit I, Ray Kroc, admit that I'm an infringer. But I'll pay you a million dollars to leave it alone and let it go. You can continue to use the McDonald's trademark where you are. You continue to use it, so you stay in business. Now, in actuality, they had to give up the mark. They had to change their trademark. But if somebody comes to you and says, I'm gonna give you a million dollars free, just let me continue to use the McDonald's, you won't have to sue me, because if you sue me, you're gonna go bankrupt to win, and you may never see a penny during your lifetime. This is a business decision, it's a practical decision. You want the money to change your trademark, or do you wanna fight this out to the death? So in that case, even though Ray Kroc was a willful infringer, the original McDonald's founders thought it was better to take the money and run. Thank you. All right. Thank you for the question in the back of the room. All right. All right. Get your energy level up. This is the last. I'm talking to the panel, not you guys. The last, the last question. Oh, maybe not. Stand up. Say your name. Hi, my name is Daniel Garcia. Um, I just want to have a how long would you advise your clients to renew the patent? Is, I know you said there was a 14-month period process, it, so I just wanted to know how far in advance. Okay, so a patent cannot be renewed. A patent has a fixed term. When that patent runs its term, 20 years from filing, it expires and it falls into the public domain. Once a patent expires, anybody can use it around the world for free. And somebody who files a new patent application can't repatent the same invention that is already in the public domain. Now, once you get a patent, the patent office requires that you pay maintenance fees because the, the government believes it's a use it or lose it process. They raise money to maintain the patent office. So you have to pay three maintenance fees to keep your patent alive after it's issued. If your patent never issues, you don't pay. But there's a maintenance fee payment for four years, 
than in eight years and 12 years, and the fees go up. If you want to maintain your patent for its full 20-year life, you have to pay a fee at four years, eight years, and 12 years. If you forget or choose not to pay the fee, then your patent expires early. And remember, once the patent expires, it goes in the public domain, and everyone can use it freely without having to pay any kind of fee to the original patentee. Thank you. Thank you for asking the question. Oh, yes. Uh, my name is John, and um, my question is about, uh, there's a show on Comedy Central called Nathan for You, and the creator of the show essentially created a coffee shop that copied the look and the service of Starbucks, and he got away with it. He even called the shop Starbucks, but he uh, put dumb before the name and called it dumb Starbucks, and he claimed that he was protected by parody law. Uh, so eventually it got shut down because he didn't have a health license to continue operating the business because they did serve food and drinks. But had he secured that, if you guys were lawyers for Starbucks, how would you pursue this? Bob, I'm going to ask you as a litigator to uh, step into the vortex here and answer that question. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't really know, you know all the facts as, as far as the situation you described, but when I was pursuing infringers for In-N-Out Burgers for, for 12 years. And we went at, after, I would say, in excess of 500 infringers. And a lot, a lot of them were infringers or they were other businesses that bothered our client. And so we would send cease and desist letters to those businesses. And sooner or later, they would back down. I mean, they did back down right away, and sometimes we pay him some money to change the name, or else we'd have to sue them and then they'd back down then, or we would litigate for a while and then they'd back down later, and so, as Moreland was referring to, it just, it just doesn't make any sense to, to take on a big company. You know, in the U.S., for the most part, each side pays their own attorney's fees, and so, whenever, whenever in and out would, would contact me, or I would see, you know, I would see people that were coming close in some way. They're, you know, they're using the name, including the N in the middle, or they had, you know, the bent boomerang arrow, for example. If, if other businesses were using that, and if related to to uh, food in any way, we we would go at we would go after those businesses. And uh, like I said, a lot of times in and out would pay those businesses to change their names. But, but a lot of big companies are just really ruthless. And they, you know, any, anyone who gets in their way, they, they go after them. And that, you know, that's just the way it is. You, you want to comment on I'm that? Gonna, I have no comment, but I'll let Venus go first. I was just going to comment on um, parody laws. Uh, if it's a parody, if it's truly a parody, uh, then you can get away with it, but you have to meet certain criteria. The more commercial the nature of what you're doing or what dumb Starbucks is doing, if they're selling coffee, if they're making money, then that's more of an infringement because it's the commercial nature of what they're doing. But if it's strictly a parody, like a Saturday Night Live parody, then there's no infringement there because you know when you see that, you know, it. You uh, you know that it's it's a parody. You know a parody when you see it. Um, the other thing is that 
the commercial nature of it. And so because he was selling, uh, or maybe even not, he said that, I think he said that we're not selling it, but if they want to donate, then he's still making money. Um, and with a parody, you can only use so much as is required so that it raises that question of, you know, is it a parody of Starbucks? So they can only use enough. If they use too much of it, then you're more towards the infringement. And it's decided on a case-by-case -case basis. I'm just going to say one quick thing. She's actually correct, but under the copyright law and the trademark law, there's something called fair use. So you have the right to be a quasi-infringer, provided that you're making commentary or criticism. So let's say you wanted to use on your website, Starbucks sucks, Starbucks sucks, because you didn't like the service, you didn't like the coffee. How else would you be able to do that if you didn't use the word Starbucks? So if you want to criticize them, and your criticism is reasonable, the only option for you to do that is to use the Starbucks name. So in that case, even though you're a quasi-infringer, because this is criticism, and that is protected, and that is considered fair use. So in that case, even though you really are an infringer, just for comment or criticism, where there's no commercial value to you, you're doing it not because you're competing with them to make money, but you're doing it simply to criticize and comment upon their business. Fair use and copyright and trademarks is a protectable defense. Excellent. All right. Yes, question. Stand up and say your name. Sure. Uh, my name is Danny. Uh, my question uh, relates to uh, trademarks. So, as far as I understand, there's different requirements and different um, levels of enforcement for trademarks and service marks. With when it comes to trademarks, services, things that are registered as services versus goods are enforced differently and have different requirements. I want to know if you guys could maybe just comment on that, or and or maybe describe a situation where you. We're trying to sort of argue for one for the benefit of your client and had a hard time and were either successful or failed. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I can answer that. In general, as far as litigating those kinds of cases, whether it's a trademark or a service mark, it's, it's really the same and the law is all the same. It's just when you go to register your mark, when you register your mark for goods, when you, when you want to prove use, you have to submit something that shows the mark on the goods and they, you know, you're actually selling the goods. Whereas if you're registering your mark for services like a dental office or something like that, there's, you know, there's no goods involved and so all you have to submit is any kind of advertising or, or a photograph of the sign in front of the office or, or something like that. But I mean, as far as any big distinction between trademarks and service marks, and my thought is there, there, really, is, there really isn't any. Any other comment? And I was going to say the same thing. It's just the specimen that you provide to the trademark office. If it's a good, then you have to provide a different. You have to provide the mark on the goods. Um, if it's a service mark, you have to provide advertising material. Advertising material would not work for a good if you are registering a trademark. I'm just going to make one comment. So the test for infringement, how do you know whether you're infringing a, a trademark rights? The test is likelihood of confusion. And what that means is you have to look at the product or the service. The law treats trademarks and service marks the same. So for examination, it's pretty much the same. For litigation and enforcement, pretty much the same. 
the issue is, if you're a consumer and you see a trademark that belongs to an infringer, would you mistakenly believe that that trademark is actually being used by the true trademark owner? So if you're confused, you see an infringing use of a mark, you say, oh, it must be McDonald's, gotta be. But it's not. You're confused. The products are the same or the services are the same. It doesn't matter. The trademarks and service marks are treated for examination purposes, litigation purposes, the same. Same test, likelihood of confusion. Are you going to be confused when you see somebody's services? You know, I, I have uh, consultation services. Am, am I competing and using somebody else's trademark to confuse the public as to who stands behind those services or who's selling those goods? So in reality, the examination process and the litigation process is exactly the same whether it's a trademark or a service mark. One's a product, one's a service. And pretty much it. All right, I'm responsible for starting as close to being on time as possible and for concluding as reasonably close to being on time. My commitment was that by uh, quarter till, we would stop the formal part of this so that if you had some additional time and you wanted to ask any of the panels an individual question, you could talk to the panelists directly. So I'm going to ask you for one last rousing set of applause for these three wonderful attorneys. wonderful attorneys in the same sense, but I mean it tonight. I want to thank the School of Business, Dean Salt for the gracious invitation, Ryan for putting all this together, for everyone's ideas, and mostly for your curiosity. Don't ever lose being curious. You can lose a lot of things. Russell may lose his athletic talent later in life, but if you maintain a healthy curiosity through all your endeavors, I will guarantee you, you have a great likelihood of being successful and enjoying your professional life. So on behalf of the business school here at one of my favorite, if not my favorite venues in all the college campuses in Southern California, I'm Rick Franzi. You'll be able to hear this in length on iTunes and Stitcher later this week. Just type Critical Mass for Business. My Twitter handle, if you use Twitter as CEO Peer Groups, you're welcome to follow me there. I'd love to have a conversation with you, as well as my Facebook page. But again, let's thank the lawyers for the contest. You, uh, anybody wants a picture with any of them, my wife Deborah has the camera. Be happy to get it to you. Just tell us how to get it to you. If not, uh, go forth and have a great uh, spring semester and summertime. Thank you. All right. I'll see you.